Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside the Closet. Uh, I'm your host, um, Ryan Seacrest, and our co-host, uh, Kelly Rippa. How are you, Kelly? I don't know who's supposed to answer that. I know. I don't I don't want to be Kelly. <laughs> I'm so okay. It's me. I'm her. And we have a special other co-host today. I'll be Gelman today. <laughs> I was going to say J-Lo. Oh, my God. Well... Um, we have our, officially our most frequent guest, Trana Wintour, Woo! is here. Yay. So happy to be back. How are you, Trana? Trana, I wish we had some kind of award to hand you to be like, <laughs> thank you for being the most <laughs> frequent no, guest that inside the, the closet. <laughs> that That is the award. And I am so honored and thankful. <laughs> And I'm doing all right. I mean, I listened to your last episode where I think, Mateo, you started the episode just sort of screaming, like, when is this all going to be over? And I feel like I'm definitely at that point the week now. Before that or the week before that? It could be really anyone in this past year to be, but yes. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, it really, but I'm somehow that, I've like. I'm reaching that breaking point. Yeah. I, I feel like this week has been slightly better. And I think it's just because I left for 24 hours. I, I did a show in Indiana, which normally I wouldn't leave. I've not left Manhattan since the beginning of this pandemic, but I also have to pay rent and eat food. And it's gotten to that point where it's like, I have no other option. So I'd left it all, followed all the guidelines, et cetera. But it was funny because when I got on stage, I said, look, I haven't left Manhattan since last March. And I told myself, when this pandemic is over, the first place I'm going is Indiana. <laughs> I said, most people pick Greece, Spain. Oh, no. I pick Indiana in the middle Where of in Indiana? <laughs> it was, I believe, man, it was two hours outside of Indianapolis. Um, so it was like Manchester or something, I think is what the, man, the University of Manchester was the name of the school. But they were great audience. I'm actually going to Indiana very oddly enough, February 13th and 14th. So, so fucking random. But whatever. It is what it, it is. What it is. Trana, have you had the luxury of being in Indiana, Mike Pence's home state? No, I have not. I have not. I've never been. Is that considered the Midwest? Like, I don't even know. I'm Canadian for anyone listening. Like, I don't want to, you know, seem <laughs> so totally ignorant. Um, <laughs> and I guess, like, I'm sort of like the quintessential liberal nightmare where I only acknowledge the coasts. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that because Blue Indiana, Indianapolis, and Bloomington are both, like, I can't think of a better word. They're both, like, funky and cool. Like, Bloomington, Indiana is very, like, a college vibe. It's, like... It's, I, I want to say like Montreal, but that is a total bastardization of like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Bloomington, Indiana is absolutely nothing oh, like be, Montreal. And obviously I'm like, I'm joking and I would definitely go where, especially wherever the two of you say is like a cool spot to go. Like I trust both of you, but I wouldn't just start randomly exploring 
parts of the United States, you know. <laughs> They've got a really good comedy club in Bloomington called the Comedy Attic, which is like really like well curated. And the guy that runs it like seems to really like loves comedy. So that I can recommend. And there's some good food. There's a lot of, you know, vegan spots, which is usually an indicator of open mindedness in some ways. Yes. And close <laughs> That is true. If you see like a like a really good coffee shop or anywhere that's vegan or vegetarian, I'm like, well, they they probably like right. There's people. someone there who's thought about something that's a little bit different. But that's why I always order meat when I'm in those places because I don't want them to think I'm too much. Not in the vegan restaurant, but if I'm in the middle of Indiana at a like a restaurant <laughs> and I order like a soup and they're like, "Do you want bacon on it?" and I say no, then I'll be like, "But I normally eat shit tons of meat. Like I meat, 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 meat." Because I don't want them to think, that's how neurotic I am. I don't want them to think that I'm like, girl, I don't eat meat. <laughs> Which is fine, too. But but here we are. Yeah. I was going to say, it would be kind of funny to see you go into a vegan restaurant and being like, what do you meat? have with meat? Yeah, they'll be like, this is where people are not lesbians. And that is, you just indicated you seem like a, the worst type of lesbian. <laughs> The, the school was interesting because, you know, usually when I do college gigs, I ask the kids, like, what's really popular? Like, what do y'all do? Like, you know, just what? back in my day, we had we had live journal, you know, so I'm just sort of like, what do you do? And the, they literally they were so funny. They go, we cry. <laughs> and then this one girl goes, I was like, what do you do now? Like on Friday nights, like, what's the thing to do? And this girl goes, well. The other day, um, I called my friend and we had hot chocolate six feet apart from each other in the wow. hallway. I was like, wow, college is really changing. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. I mean, that's more than I'm doing right now. Mm. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> I know that's not much of a consolation, but. <laughs> You've been doing any online dating? Um, I. I feel, okay, I feel like, you know, it's been 11 months now. And at this point, I think there are approximately 100 guys that I've been stringing along. Okay. Um, and they're all starting to lose patience at the same time. How have you been stringing them along for a while? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear you, Emma. You've been able to string them on for 11 months? Some of them. I mean, there are even some guys that I've been stringing along for like three years. What? That's, you know, like, I'm not yours. I'll tell you that right now. That's on them. Well, I don't know. I mean, I have to take responsibility for my part um, in this mess. But I don't know. I just like, there have been actually a handful of guys that if we weren't in the pandemic, I would actually kind of want to actually meet in person. But right now, I don't know. I'm not even that freaked out about the virus, but I, I don't know. There's just something about the idea of meeting someone that I don't know at all that just is kind of making me uneasy. At more pressure moment. for it, the date to quote unquote go well and connect because it's like you're making more, it's less like, oh, I just happen to be in the area or this time works. It's like, it just, it puts more pressure on the date, which is never, it's like more expectations. I yeah, exactly. But honestly, to well, you know, even in general, even before the pandemic, like, I'm just like such a guarded person, you know, like all my walls are up, all my defenses are up. And I don't even know how much I really wanted, but I do like attention. Like I like sexting, I like flirting. I and often that's just kind of enough for me. I love sexting. It's I've been sexting with someone. It's been the, so good. I can't even believe it. And she'll send me like 
voice memos, like sex voice memo. Oh, it's just like, ah, just really cranks it up a notch. I love sexting. <laughs> yeah, me, I think it's underrated. And I don't know, like, do you feel both of you like at the point now where because it's it's been 11 months now that we've been living these like isolated, distance lives, like, I don't know if we can just like throw ourselves back into the social aspect of life. Like, I think we're at the point now where like the damage, there's damage that is taking place. Mm. You know, in terms of like how we well, react and relate to each other face to face and that idea of meeting new people and letting new people in after we've just been living like hermits for almost a year. And there's all these articles that are like, it's going to be the roaring 20s after this. And and I'm of two mindsets of this because one, I'm a little like, like you were saying, Trina, like I've just become so accustomed to my living alone and not seeing other people that I actually like even traveling to Emma, you can use your hands. You're going to break your teeth. You, you use your hands, Emma. Um, it, traveling even to Indiana gave me anxiety because I'm like, I haven't traveled. But then yeah. I also in the other mindset of like, if the pandemic like ends, let's say, and someone's like, do you want to do copious amounts of Molly and go dancing, which are two things I absolutely do not do. I'd be like, yeah, let me go grab my jockstrap. Oh, I'm like so ready to do things that I've never done before when this is over or things that I didn't do enough of, you know, like I was never a big nightlife clubber kind of person. But right now there is nothing that I want more than to just be in like a sweaty gay club where like Britney and Lady Gaga and Madonna and all of it are just blasting so fucking loud that I just like feel it in my body. I need that so badly. I want to go to some restaurant that's so like crowded that like when you're going to the bathroom, you have to be like, excuse me, excuse me. And you like don't want to like bump into the appetizers and there's just like people waiting and like you're like looking at people's food and being like, oh, is that mine? Like why'd they get their quesadilla before I got my nachos? Like what the fuck? That's what I want. Like that yeah, like that liveliness. Yes, because I've been in restaurants, but it's like 25% capacity. Things are going real, or it's like you can't, you're, you're not getting menus. And I always forget that. So I like sit and wait forever for the menu. And then it never, the menu never comes. I, I, that's what I want. <laughs> I watched um, Against My Better Judgment. Yeah. I was on Netflix yesterday. So I watched Eat, Pray, Love. And I only watched <laughs> when she's in Italy. I skipped the beginning. For the first time I ever. I turned it off and. No, I've seen it before, like on planes. If I, you know, um, first of all, the movie's bad, and the uh, Julie Roberts is just—I love her, but this is not a good role for her. But anyways, I, I watch when she's in Italy, and obviously, everyone knows I go to Italy all the time. And so, when she, when they show her walking in Rome, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. It's like that—that's the sunlight, the dawn coming through, and you hear the Roman bells and the, you know, the Italian like ambulances of like. I had a tangible sadness. I was like, I want so badly just to go to Italy. And then I immediately turned off because Julie Roberts is like, you know, flipping through a dictionary and like somehow like within seconds <laughs> finds the right phrase to, for this old Italian woman. They also right. painted Italians to look like cavemen, but. I have um, the string the people, yeah. I'm gonna put that in quotes, the string along for a year. How do you like, what would it take for someone to really stand out for you? Like how, like, is it about them? Like, cause Mateo and I have talked about this a lot. Like when you like sometimes instinctively are like, I'll feel like I'll put on a show or just be trying to get the person to like me. But then for someone to like, really be like, Oh, it's like, 
if they start asking me questions and they kind of like flip it back around and I guess are like a person back and not just like, or what does it take for you just to be like, oh, this person is different? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I just, even though it's such an obvious answer, like I think I was having a conversation with a friend a few days ago and that answer sort of became more clear for me. And I think it's really like intellectual stimulation, you know, like sometimes I have these moments where I'm talking to these really nice guys, you know, guys who I believe have this like very caring side, this sort of lovable side, the sweetness. And I've realized that that's just not enough for me. Like nice is not enough and caring is not enough. I really need someone that I can have like deep conversations with. And it's not like I'm some philosopher or academic, but I just need that stimulation. Someone who's just nice and sweet and like wants to cook for me is not enough. I wish that it wasn't. Sometimes I feel guilty and sometimes I feel like I've closed the door on things that might've been good, but I realize now that it's like, no, they just weren't stimulating. They're perfectly nice, but they just weren't stimulating. You're in good company. We talk about that a lot. And it, <laughs> it is really hard if someone is nice too. And it makes you question, it makes you, because then someone could be intellectually stimulating but not nice. And that's a problem too. Cause I, yes, that is a problem too. I remember I, I had that before too, where it was like, they're very intellectually stimulating, but so many other things didn't line up and that is tricky. Yeah, no, it is. And I think that, you know, like I've been in love seriously twice, you know, it, for me, I don't know if it's different for everyone, but to me, it's just, it's a rarity, you know, it's some, I'm that happens so infrequently that someone comes into my life in whatever way and just like blows my mind away. Like it's just very rare. It really is. I'm the same. I, I've been in love twice my whole life. And I, and I, I, I do think it is either I'm super picky, which I admit that I am, or it's also just incredibly rare to have that feeling of just, you know, you can't explain it when you're in love where it's like, it literally possesses you like a yeah. drug. Like you can't control yourself. Um, so I've had, had that twice. So what is your pickiness? Like, I think for me, what I, I'm not picky about like specific traits, but I'm, I think the thing ultimately that I'm picky about is that I need to have that feeling, you know, like if that feeling is yeah, that, there, yeah. like, I can't pretend, you know? I think I'm also about gut instinct where, it's like, and even though that, even though the, at the core, maybe spiritually I'm connected with this person, maybe there's other exterior things orbiting this person's life that makes it eventually not work out. Or it just is a love that happens within that time. Cause I think that's also a possibility, but I would say, I just trust my gut instinct. I, I, I've been, I've dated people for a little bit and I could like the three week, four week mark, it just hits me. I'm like, I don't, I yeah. see the expiration date. Yeah. I, so with the idea of a love, I remember, and I've actually really been in love twice where I, this really, really, my girlfriend in college, Lily, and then I was really in love with Daniela. And then I felt, I felt a love for Like I really felt a love for a lot of other people. And then sometimes it'll be like, there'll be like pheromones and excitement or I've confused. So this is kind of embarrassing and I've been working on it in therapy. I've definitely confused people 
taking care of me, which actually isn't even what I'm looking for. I don't want someone to take care of me. I want to take care of myself. But like in terms of them just being really nice and like doing a lot and prioritizing me, which I don't want actually because you lose interest with that. But I've confused that with me being like, oh, okay, I love them. But it's like, no, it's just that's very nice of them to do. And you're having shared experiences. But I'll consider that like a love, but not right. in love. Right. Which... I'm trying to be better about because you want to be in the same page. Like I remember in college, my friend being like, do you love blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I have a love for her. And they were like, ooh. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's not that bad of a thing to have a love. But. Yeah, it's better than hating. Um, let's take a quick break and we come back. Uh, I have a fun Yay. story to share. Okay, we're back. Uh, thank you to all of our sponsors. <laughs> um, so I wanted to chat about this and um, just to sort of sum because it's less about what I experienced and more about an, an overall experience that the three of us have frankly all shared. Um, I did a podcast uh, a couple days ago, maybe like a week ago. And it's a very controversial podcast. I'm just trying to leave their names out of it because I'm not trying to start any drama. They know that I respect them. And, and But I just felt it's fair to talk about my experience because, you know, every, I have my own platform to talk about it. Um, the, the podcast lauds itself. Obviously, it's a, they go for controversy and that's what their audience loves. And um, so they make no bones about it. You know, it's like I certainly entered an arena, an arena knowing all well what I was getting myself into. Um, but, you know, times have changed. I've evolved. Things have changed. And uh, we started talking about this movie Palmer um, that Justin Timberlake, who I, we can, I can go on forever about how annoying I think he is. But anyways, for, for all intents and purposes, the movie is about him. He's an ex-convict. He comes back home and there's a child living with his mom or grandma or someone. But he somehow becomes responsible for this child. They don't say whether the child is trans or non-binary or an effeminate gay for all intents and purposes, it is a young boy who likes girlish things, and that's sort of the focus of the movie, right? So we were in this conversation, and and the host started to use, I, I actually don't even feel comfortable saying the word, but let's just say the bad word for trans, right? And it got deeper, and I tried to sort of stand my ground and defend myself, saying, I don't, you know, I this just isn't funny to me, and, and sort of, can we move on? And their argument, which is valid, what they said, we're allowed to say what we want and we don't like being, you know, we don't want to be That's, controlled. It's our, like, so say we, what you want, but then you can say what you want and they can't, I'm so sick of people being like, I can say what I want. And it's like, and I can fucking say what I want. Right, right, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. So I stood my ground. I did threaten to leave the show, but it was a, a an amicable agreement to move on. It was incredibly uncomfortable and I was shaking afterwards uh, just because it, it's one of those situations where I just was a little triggered. I was like, oh, God, it's just like there's there's multiple straight people telling me how to define my own humor. And I was just trying to defend myself. They probably don't view it that way, but that was my perception of it. So I immediately <laughs> called Trana because Trana, we've talked about this for over the years in our friendship about 
what it's like being queer and especially with you being trans and what that's like being in comedy clubs and hearing people make these types of jokes and what we've, what we deem for ourselves as acceptable. And I just thought that maybe we could have a conversation between us three about our experiences being queer in comedy and how we've dealt with that and what, not that it matters to the whole world, but just at least for ourselves, what we deem acceptable and where we draw the line. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, like I listened to the podcast that you were on and I really think you did like such an amazing job because we've all been in situations where we're around these sort of like straight men that are, you know, kind of bullyish and it's triggering for anyone who's been bullied before in their lives. I know for me, whenever I find myself in one of those types of situations, like I get those like palpitations and I'm so nervous inside and I'm like shaking and I, I still don't really know how to stand my ground, you know? So I like listening to you on that podcast, like I was really impressed honestly with the way that you were able to in a really smart and kind way not that you needed to be kind in that moment but that <laughs> you were able to just really converse you know and i think it was really effective thanks it's also it's thanks. it's tough too because it's like when being kind and clap it's like tough always like needing to but it, to, when you have the emotional energy to do that when you do do that it's you feel it feels better too because you're not going to then I don't know. It just it feels better. I think too. It's like we can know what we're getting ourselves into, but like you still want to. It's like there should still be respect there. Like you don't want to feel like a, you were planted and or set up. I think. Right. Right. Which it's uh, yeah, and I, I would say too. Like I was mostly afraid of the reaction from their fan base because I'm just not good with with drama online. I mean, obviously I'm on social media, but I got off Twitter for that reason. And, and I would say, um, and Trana, we talked about this the other day, but I, I got a very 50, 50 split reaction from their fan base. And, um, half of their fans, usually the ones saying something mean, which the hosts even told me personally, we don't stand for this. We told them not to say something bad against you. Um, but you know, it was like, vulgar faggot this and that like on my page and i would just block them because i was like i just don't need any extra drama but then i would get a lot of private messages very long saying i really really respect you like trana said i respect you for standing your ground and people need to hear this and I, you know I, I respect you for staying on the show so so you know i think when you're in those situations when we've been in them in comedy clubs we've been in them on the road we've been at them on you know social media where in the moment it's just these bad feelings because like trana said it can be triggering but in the end i look back and think well i actually was quite proud of how i handled myself and and what i said but you know, um, Trana, I'll, I'll just lead with you just saying, you know, you are a trans comic who works in Montreal and you're open about it. And starting out to where you are now, I mean, how have you wrestled with people who try to combat your existence? Oh, my that, God. I mean, that's the proper question. luckily, it hasn't happened too often, you know, like really, I've been 
I thought it would happen a lot more when I first started comedy. Like I sort of went into comedy expecting that and it didn't really happen all that much. I think the worst time that it ever happened was this time where I was doing this show in this club in downtown Montreal at this time during Grand Prix, which is like the car racing shit. And it like takes over the city for a weekend. And sorry, Emma, what what's it called? What'd you say, Emma? Uh, the Grand Prix. Ah. It's like Formula One racing. And so like- Oh, Grand Prix, they have that in Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah, like that's a racing town, right? I've heard that. Um, Mm -hmm. Like obviously it's something that I know nothing about, but basically for that week leading up to the race, there's like these like douchebag men from all over the world that come to Montreal. And the comedy club that I was performing in is like right in the pocket of where all of that stuff is going on. And it was a late show and the entire audience was just these men. Like there wasn't a single female or queer person in the audience, which is rare. It's rare to have an audience that is just one demographic. Um, And the show started off badly. Like they were saying racist things towards the host who was a, a straight cis man. And I'm like, my God, like if they're going after this straight cis man and feel comfortable enough to do that, like what the fuck is waiting for me on the other side of this shit show? Oh God. Um, and honestly, looking back, like, because this happened when I was still really new, like now if I was in a room where I felt like this is going to be a disaster, I would just leave, you know? Like right. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Um, But I I did go up, it was super uncomfortable, especially because so much of my material, especially at that time, was about my relationships with straight men and the sort of tension that exists between straight men and trans women. And they were not having any of it. And someone (laughs) um, sort of just yelled faggot at me while I was on stage. And it was like this, split second where it really brought me back to being like 13 years old. And as a 13 year old, I would have just shriveled up and gone silent. But there was something in that moment and the fact that I was on stage where it's like, you know, like I'm past that point in my life. Like I've done that. I've been on the receiving end of this. I've been silent. Like I've worked so hard, not just creatively, but just within myself to be at this moment in my life where I can actually get up on the stage and do this. And I'm like, no fucking way, like is someone going to come in here and pull that shit? And I don't remember exactly what I said anymore because it's been years, but I did just sort of like rip them apart and um, they got really, really mad. And then they basically were basically like, we're gonna be waiting for you after the show to I guess like beat me up. Um, But luckily the guys like working the club, like got him and his friends out of there. But it was like really fucking scary in the moment, you know? Sure, that's petrifying. But the thing is, too, is that like there's always this expectation that as comedians, we have to deal with hecklers or these things and make it funny. But that is very different than being heckled. You know what I mean? Like, that's like you're being verbally attacked. And I don't really think Mm -hmm. there's a way to 
I don't think there's an obligation to make your response to that funny. Like I have a, a, I a Muslim yeah. comedian friend and something very similar happened to her too, where someone sort of yelled out something Islamophobic at her while she was on stage. And she didn't know how to deal with it. And she was so freaked out and she was like crying. And, you know, it's when you're part of a marginalized community as a performer and someone yells something that is derogatory or bigoted at you it's on stage, that's not heckling anymore, you know? And I don't think that you have to find a way to make it funny. Right. Cause also, did, was there any part of you um, that was like, wanted to like wilt away, not a wilt away, but just move away from them. Cause there's been times where it's like, if I feel like a certain type of toxicity, I'll almost like back out of my material. And I never know if I'm happy with myself for doing that, or it's only happened in Vegas, if I'm being totally honest, where I'll be like, okay. I feel I just be like, I feel like a toxic sludge here. And I remember I was like, I bet if I make fun of how I look, you guys are gonna like that in a way I'm uncomfortable with. And then I did, and then they were like, ha, ha, ha. and I was like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. And then the rest of my jokes were like, kind of like not landing at all. But right. afterwards I was like, was that the right thing to do? Should I have just done my material and like plowed through it? Like, what's my, what is my job here? But it was like, I almost, I felt like I was like, I can't, I can't give the, give them that because, and I, but I have done it before where then I have, but it just feels so icky. Well, it's confusing. I, I th by the way, if you, I was gonna say, if you hear construction, there's someone do, literally hacksawing outside my apartment. So I'm trying to mute my, if you can't hear it, oh, I great. I actually don't hear it. <laughs> okay, I, perfect. For those at home, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. I think Sam. like Emma, like what you're describing, like it sort of relates back to your experience on that podcast, Mateo, and like sort of what I went through in that moment. Like those, these moments are destabilizing <laughs> and they are confusing and you don't know what to do in the moment. And you're trying to think and you're trying to, figure out, well, how can I get out of this, like uh, the least scathed possible, you know? And sometimes I think that we're sort of expected to be warriors sometimes and like really stand up for something. But I think sometimes like you also just need to take your own safety and your own feelings into account. You know, like I felt like when I started comedy, mm -hmm. like I felt like there was this responsibility for me to like, get up in these spaces and be who I am and claim that. And, you know, now it's like, what's the fucking point? Like, right. it, it's not my responsibility, you know, to sort of educate people and change people's minds through comedy. It's like, if that happens, great, but I don't need to do that. You know, I don't have to put myself out there in that way. So I think that like, in terms of what you're describing, Emma, it's like, I think both, responses are valid. Like if you felt in the moment that it was going to be better for you to shift your material and do something different because you didn't want to right. deal with the potential hatred from this audience. Like, I don't think that that takes anything away from, you know, just your own self-appreciation. I don't think that takes anything away from that. Right. I think too, and to, to both of your points and Trana, we also talked about this is like when you're on stage and you're in an audience that you, that, you know, you don't know, but you sometimes they're laughing at you for the wrong yeah. reasons where it's like, if I'm making a joke about my sexuality, the joke isn't about me internalizing 
how I hate myself or gay people. I'm making an observation and trying to bridge a gap between people who probably are not queer or gay in the audience. But sometimes they see it almost as a performance of gay or queer people or trans people for the entertainment of straight people, which is not what I'm doing. And I've talked about this with Yamanika Saunders as well, where and she says, look, and I agree with her. She's like, there's times where I hear people laughing for the wrong right. reasons. And, yeah. you know, I know what that's about. And I, I've had that too. And I think when I started in comedy and I look back Obviously, there was not a lot of queer or gay men for me to really view as a, not an inspiration, but just sort of a, mm-hmm. a guide. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, and, and predominantly all of comedy is straight. And I've had, an, like you said, as well, an overwhelmingly good experience. You know, it's not like I've had this toxic experience. Like, it, no, if anything, it's been proven to me that straight people, it's not this sort of combative world. It's They appreciate you for the hard work and jokes, but you're always sort of playing against your type. Yeah. So people either discredit you because, or don't think you're a threat because of your sexuality or your gender or whatever, or, you know, they just see you as um, a stereotype. And even myself, there's past podcasts or interviews I've done where things and jokes I wouldn't say today that were probably too... Um, self-deprecating mm-hmm. and I think it was from a place of insecurity and seeking acceptance from what I viewed as my peers and I'm and this podcast I did last week was sort of a uh, just a reminder to myself how much I've grown and how I if I don't find it funny then I don't play yeah. the game even if that means sacrificing the vibe of the show or for the sake of comedy, I think this year has proven there's some things more important than just getting a laugh to get Uh, the laugh. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And I think that also like what vibe were you really going to (laughs) ruin? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I mean, it's just like, I'm, I'm taught, and we all know like a hundred men like this in this industry, especially now more than ever, because I think you're right, Mateo, like before we were not regarded as a threat or as anything, there was very little regard for us. Um, but now I think that like, clearly there is this queer wave in comedy where you're seeing like the shows that get the best reviews on all the stream platforms are all the shows created by our queer peers. These are the shows that are getting, you know, the attention. And there is this moment, I think, for a lot of middle-aged, straight, white men who feel like something is being taken away from them, but really all that's being asked is to evolve. Mm. You know, like no one's trying to Mm. deliberately exclude anyone, but but like this is a moment of evolution. And if you don't want to partake in that, then, you know, whatever follows is sort of on you. And this clinging onto this idea of freedom of speech, like I don't even buy it. I don't even buy that that's what they value. They value their power and the power that they've consistently had over other people. They don't actually value free speech. You know, their ability to say anything they want is really just they're clinging onto this power that they've always had over everybody else. Question. Do they know, like, do they, are they aware that they aren't advocating for free speech? Because sometimes when I see them, it really seems like they might, I don't know if I'm giving too much leeway, but like when they're like, free speech, free speech, free speech. I'm like, do you really, 
Like they, maybe you really think that because that's all you're capable of where your mind can go with it. Like, so it's like, then I'm like, that's when I'm, I'll get like interested. Like, it's like, if you, but also then it's like, we'll take it one thought process further to really look at what you're doing and like have like some empathy and you also have to listen. So, but I, I wonder, I'm like, I, I, I think most of them actually don't really think they're really advocating for free speech. I think they're just, I think they've just confused. I think the two things like their sort of privilege and power and the idea of free speech have become mm becomes so intermingled for them that they can't really separate those two things, you know, because you're right, like they are really passionate about this concept of free speech, but I don't think their concept of free speech is actually what free speech is, you know what I mean? And I think that, you know, I agree that we are in a moment where there is such a thing as too sensitive and there is such a thing where the compromising of free speech is a dangerous thing. Sure. I just don't think that line is where they think it is. I am so mm -hmm. guilty of also like me. I just have to hold myself accountable. If someone like doesn't like something that I'll say sometimes, sometimes I'll listen and be like, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Like I did something recently where someone pointed out the error in my ways. And they said, I think that you have, some internalized fat phobia there um, from your childhood of being overweight that you're then like projecting. And I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. You're right. But that was different than like, literally I remember being in San Francisco and I was saying something about who knows what and someone went all, and I was like, these people are too sensitive, like screw these people. Right. It, and I st still think that what they said onto was lame, but even if it wasn't, I still would have been pissed and would have written off. And then I like write off the entire city. I'm like, San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Emma, I was there with you that night because we both had that. I, I agree. A show I, in San Francisco I, that I, went well. And I was like, they're not all bad. I don't mind them. But it's like <laughs> so contingent. They react to me. It's, so I, this is the this is the hard thing that we all wrestle with, which I think that they're also arguing, which I think all comics universally, no matter where you come from or what point of view you are, we all agree on is that sometimes jokes do make people uncomfortable. And, you know, there is an argument to say, like, for example, we all want freedom of speech. We all want to express ourselves. And sometimes like poetry, like movies, like music, like paintings, it goes into dark places because we're trying to express yeah. a point. And using humor is a very tricky way to express those things because we're associating laughter with laughing at rather than mm -hmm. laughing with. Right. Now that also being said, I think, you know, what, if you were to discuss, like I've said jokes that have upset people. We've all said jokes that have upset people. If we were to be questioned on those jokes, I'm guessing that we would all have an explanation of the intent and the intention mm -hmm. of that joke. Yeah. And there is leeway. I think, to say things for the sake of saying things because you don't want to be told you can't say them opens up a more tricky place because then it can devalue other people and other comedians for what they do consider jokes if they are working in very racy material. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I even said, and I agree, I don't, if that's, if that's how they choose that they want to talk and speak, I certainly will not tell them mm -hmm. to stop. I mean, they are allowed to say and express themselves any way they want. I do not believe in censoring people, but again, that's why I'm having this conversation so that we as people who 
are often on that side can discuss the reaction. Right. Right. But there is like, I do like, well, I agree with everything you said, but I think the idea that you, that a person can say anything at all ever, I don't know. Like there's a reason why hate speech is considered hate speech. Like there, I don't think we can pretend that there isn't language that doesn't have like concrete. Well, I have a ramifications for people like there was this really big case right. with this quebec comedian who was doing this material about this um kid basically in quebec who had become sort of a media personality i don't know exactly what medical condition they have but they have some sort of medical condition and they received like a sort of make a wish thing and their wish was to sing with the pope i believe i could be getting the little details wrong. But anyway, this moment happened. It, it sort of, quote unquote, went viral, like this kid's story. And then there's this comedian who like was doing jokes about this kid. Um, and the sort of joke was that like, I guess this kid based on their condition had like a sort of life expectancy and then they lived longer and they sort of remained in the public eye. And this comedian was like doing this stuff about how the kid like, should have died and like this really, really dark stuff. But what made it, I think, sort of horrible, and I know this comedian, and I don't think their intentions were bad, but to sort of specifically attack this like one person mm. for their sort of medical condition. And it did translate into kids bullying this kid at school, like as a direct result of this oh. comedian's material being so popular. And then there was this court case you know, and um, my God, the comedian lost and then there was an appeal and they lost the appeal as well. And, you know, they're planning on taking it to the Supreme Court in the name of freedom of speech, which I think is actually dangerous. I think by bringing it to the Supreme Court and risking losing is actually going to be more damaging sure. for free speech than just sort of accepting this loss. Because for me, fundamentally, what it comes down to is like, this comedian's material compromised someone's safety and devalued their worth as a person. Like, mm. that's not just a joke anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that... But that, that goes to my point of, like, where I said you and I, us three are all writing jokes, crafting jokes, so to just... to to lobby yourself onto freedom of speech as being the found- this comedian foundation of a joke. they were... This was a thought out joke. This was a joke that was written and thought out, you know? Um, And it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very tricky. And I don't know what the exact, I don't know what the full answer is, but I do think that we can't pretend that language doesn't have real life consequences Mm. for the people on the receiving end of it. You know, like when people say, I mean, I'll just say the word, when people say tranny, it is dehumanizing. Mm. And when enough people say it, that dehumanization can result literally in people seeing a trans person in real life and thinking that person's life has no worth. And that leads to violence and hate crimes. So it's this really tricky thing of, we don't want to reach a place where freedom of speech is compromised, but we also don't want the most marginalized and at risk people to be harmed in this way where there are no protections for them. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, and I, I hope you know that that's also like, I feel the same as you. Like, I, I think that there are clear consequences to quote unquote freedom of speech, which like you said, that's why we have things called hate speech or that's why you have things that lead to hate crimes is because of starting where people from a malevolent point of view share that point of right. view mm-hmm. unchecked, unchecked, you know? And um, so maybe the yeah, thing, it's, maybe what it comes down to is like, you are free to say whatever you want, but then you also have to realize that there are consequences. Yeah. So it's I think like, so. I think you know, so. I don't, I don't know. It's so complicated. It's no, I agree. It's, it's the same thing with Trump right now in the Capitol where he they're going to argue that it's freedom of speech. And it's like, well, fine, but that has consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your speech has consequences. And that's why this is going into your, a trial of the impeachment mm-hmm. of the Senate. Right. That's, I'm sorry. It has consequences. You know, and I think we've, you know, I hope I, I feel that I've evolved as, as a comedian and I'm hoping to continue to evolve. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be risque yeah. with jokes or go into dark territory. But like you said, Tran, it's like if I'm evolving with it doesn't take away my intelligence or my craft as a comedian. I just exactly simply and evolving. Emma, like what you said before, like where you know, sometimes you've said something and someone has responded in a way that's made you reflect and sort of reconsider. And then other times people have said something and you're just like, no, like I know what I'm saying and I don't think that I pushed it too far. And like, I think we all know where that line is, Mm -hmm. but I just think that there is such a thing as Sometimes this idea of like too sensitive, I hate to say it because I don't want to use language that these like straight white men are always using to defend everything they do. But like there is a limit, you know, like they're just there is like I remember I made this joke about this Quebec personality, this like straight cis white male who's like a, a celebrity here and he was on the cover of Elle Quebec. And, you know, in this sort of like androgynous photo shoot where he was wearing nail polish and he was like getting all this praise for it as as if he had done something amazing. And obviously I'm all for the idea of us moving away from toxic masculinity and everyone just wearing and expressing themselves how they want to. Mm -hmm. But I also just thought it was fucking ridiculous that they were giving this straight guy who like just swoops in and does this. And it's like, he's suddenly a hero while there are people still being hated on for doing those same things. So I just made a joke about that. And someone like was just like rabid in their like, coming after me of being like, you know, you saying things like that is the reason why there's toxic masculinity and we have to allow like men to evolve. And I'm like, I never said otherwise, you know, I'm just pointing out the fact that it's kind of ridiculous that all of the work that queer and marginalized people do gets ignored. And as soon as a straight guy sort of does it, he's put on the cover of a magazine without having done any of the work. Like that's what I'm making fun of. Do, what did you guys think? Because it gets tricky with uh, with freedom of speech, too. Like, I actually, as painful as it was, like, I do think it was very... I wasn't... If I'm being, like, totally honest, when they took Trump off of Twitter, I think that's such a slippery slope because the only thing is, like, I want to know exactly, like, if, if something is inciting violence, then yes. So I guess that's why it was also okay, too. But I think it... Yeah. Just very... It has to be very clear of who decide well, who I, goes off and why and what are their 
Yeah. Twi- tw- Twitter, the, 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 to speak on that legally is that Twitter, it says they are not a, it's a, it's a private company. So when you join Twitter, you agree to their agreements. If okay. anyone reads it, okay. that they are allowed to, to, okay. to edit or sense censor anybody that they want to. So Yes, freedom of speech. He can say it wherever he wants. However, Twitter decided that this goes against their rules right. as a private company. Exactly. So, like, whereas, like, if Twitter was like a government-run yes. platform, then that would be sort of a violation. Although, then again, when you're heading into this territory where speech is being used to incite vile, like murder, right. like it's, uh, I mean. I don't words know. I transcend like words manifest yeah. right like words will manifest into physical things so you know to say that these things don't mean anything it's not to say that uh again don't express yourself but it's saying look this this has real you know maybe you think that you saying this word will not directly kill somebody that you're speaking about, but it's the thought of partaking in the conversation that has manifested and led to the violence and danger for so many queer and trans men and women. You know, if you understand that, then uh, what's more important to you to just say because you want to say it and people tell you not to say it and partake in something that's really quite awful or just stand up and do the right thing and say, okay, we're moving on, you know, and they would argue, well, if we can't say that, then we can't say anything. But again, I think it's, it's, but it's about just not the case. It's like, you know, right. those guys and all the guys like them remind me of that, of those like Republican senators or Congress people that are saying they have no freedom of speech and they're saying it on TV. Like what planet are you on? Right. Your freedom of speech has not been compromised in any way. Right. You know, and it's the same thing with these guys. They're acting like we can't say anything. We can't say anything. And yet they are always saying exactly what is on their mind with no repercussions. So what the fuck are they actually you talking about? Yeah. Reminds me of if they say I can't say anything. It reminds me of when someone's like, with all this sexual harassment stuff, I don't even know how to talk to a woman. And you're, like, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Do you know how insane you sound right? Now? Like I remember, someone goes, someone was like, "Wow, well, can we even hug people anymore?" And it's like, do you think you can hug people anymore? Are you hugging them in a way where they don't want you to? No. Like it's literally like asking it's it's just indicate indicative of so many if you didn't know how to do the social cues to do that, then you would be so incompetent that you wouldn't even be able to formulate the words to ask the question. But because it's like people are like, I don't even know like how to talk to people anymore. And it's like, so we've got some really big issues then. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know how to go into a bank without robbing it. Like I know I need- i'm i'm robbing it and it's like (laughs) well i don't want them to think i am you know i don't want to get looked at weird it's like are you robbing it well i do what i do i do what i do and you're like fuck are you talking about that that brings up a good point emma where it's like i think if you're in a minority or another 
right? However you define that. It's like, there's always so many moving parts on our end to make other people comfortable or understand us or educate other people about us or make things okay or constantly taking the temperature of the room. And then the people who are, you know, on the opposite side really haven't Mm. moved at all. And it's like, I feel I'm tired. Like I'm tired of like all these moving parts and being a part of constantly trying to educator this or that and da, da, da. and it's like at some point you know you just become tired and I think if you watch the show that I went on that's what ha- you could see in my yeah. face I was uncomfortable and also tired of this I'm like it's I'm just tired of having to explain yeah. myself yeah especially for something that really has no worth like this idea of like and again it's it's like hundreds of people in comedy that have made an entire brand out of just this tagline of we say what we want to say like it's just Do it. so yeah empty it's not a joke it's there's no writing there's no creativity there's no artistry in this like you know like it's just not worth anything so it, and and to that point like that, that's exactly why like it's not even worth responding to i mean you did in that moment and it was fantastic but you know like that's not something that you should it's not a situation that you need to be in every week ever again (laughs) yeah exactly no and i think we've all said things we regret we've all tried our best of course no one is perfect but i don't know i think like when we're talking about where all these lines are i think most sensible people know where those lines are very instinctively you know and Mm -hmm. i think we all know i think like marginalized people in general or anyone that's sort of been bullied or whatever like i think we just end up with a very keen sense of observation and we just know these things sort of instinctively like i know when someone is laughing for the wrong reasons versus the right reason like i you just know it in your bones i'd be curious if you guys had this where i've said where i've been like i've said it i said i didn't and people have been like no you're wrong and Sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe I am wrong. But I remember being in one time in Vegas and then in, I was like, I was like, God, they, they, ah, they looking at me weird. And then afterwards, a comedian, um, a Muslim comedian was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, I, and I was like, oh, I feel so validated because I was trying to say that before. And, and the people were like, I don't think so. And I, and, but, but then there are, there are times where I have been wrong where I'm like, I'll think someone is looking at me weird. And it's like, oh, who's to say? I really don't know. I think that just comes from us being bullied and aware of being different. Yeah. And so we're, we're on alert, cautious and suspicious. We're on, we're alert, on alert, like all the time. I mean, I have felt it. We're like Dina Lohan. <laughs> She's always looking out for any opportunity. God, yeah. To- like I remember like even a handful of times that like, you know, just for laughs and different comedy shows where like sometimes I've somehow managed to get like on a bigger show and it's like all of these like straight, relatively famous, like male American comedians and it's like their audience Mm. and I'm backstage and I'm just so nervous and there's no one to commiserate with, right? you know, like, because those people will not understand like why you're scared of that particular audience. Totally. And you're just in it alone. And you just got to dive off the diving board. (laughs) And I, but I like, I don't know. I mean, in those moments, honestly, I just summon my inner Mariah, my inner Madonna, my inner JLo. I just summon that energy and I'm like, fuck it. Like, 
just, you have to give it everything in those moments mm -hmm. because we all know like the audience fucking smells that fear. Yes. Mm -hmm. I summon Maria Callas. I've tattooed her on me so that I can summon her. My favorite quote of hers is on my coffee cup where she goes, and this is how dramatic she says, when my enemies stop hissing, I know I'm slipping. Ooh, mm. that's a good one. <laughs>
you know, photos that people want to release or their own story or get the right. So it was very difficult for celebrities at that time to really get out their perspective because it was usually under like a Diane Sawyer interview or a Matt Lauer interview or whatever. So that's number one. Number two, it was the height of the paparazzi, yeah. Perez Hilton, tabloid, entertainment tonight, E, um, the language we used towards women, especially at that time. I mean, it was completely different than we are today. And on top of that, when she had the breakdown, it was during this time. So if she had had the breakdown, let's say like in 95, mm -hmm. it, the, the press would not have been, it wouldn't have been so bad, but this was like, it was the worst. If she had it now, it would be like, don't speak. It was the it, worst time. Think about where worst media time. was then. There, it's there, but it's also it was like what was what was the main social? It was Facebook. Right. I mean, but in Facebook, where you could only talk to people in right. your college, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, Mateo. Like it was this very, and the documentary does a really great job of sort of explaining why this moment in time was so unique, and it was because it was the birth of all of this new media. But it was, she was also dealing with all of the old media. Like it was all yes. at once. Right. You know, whereas yes. now, like, no one buys the National Enquirer anymore except people no. over 60. And you can, my nana. Like, but you can even see that, like, National Enquirer is still talking about, like, the really old stars. They're not even talking about, like, the new ones. It's just so shifted, you know, and media is so fractured now. So it's just not the same. And, I just think that, like, it's just sad because I think Britney, like, bless her heart, was always just, like, just a sweet, you know, basically naive girl that just wanted to do this thing. And it just got so fucking ugly, you know? But there was never anything mean-spirited about her. Like, no, not, not that never. anyone deserves what she went through, but there was something particularly innocent about her. Um, right. And I think also when you add in all of the sexual stuff around her, it adds this other horrific element to all of it that is just deeply disturbing. Mm. But I think it's a really great like documentary, just even if you're not a Britney fan, like just to look at the way that media operates and to understand the connection between misogyny and the media and all of it, like, and just, it's just sad to see where she's at now. Like, I remember at the time thinking like when she made the comeback with Circus in 2008, that like, it seemed like she was really off. But when you look at her now she, and mean, you look at 2008, like 2008 looks like she was fine. Right. Normal. Like, I right. just, the saddest part to me is just, I think that there's been, and again, I'm obviously just speculating, but I think there's been a some sort of break you know, and I don't know if it's yeah. the kind of thing you a person can ever really come back from. Who made the documentary and did they have an agenda? Um, it was part of this like series that the New York Christina Times Aguilera. <laughs> <laughs> Christina's been through her own shit too. Like she didn't get she it has. in the same way. I've been rough on her and I feel the bad one that's about come her. out on top in a lot of ways. Oddly enough. No, Jessica Simpson, she's a fucking oh, what billionaire. The fuck? Yeah, but um, Jessica's I, I will but just... Jessica's been through her shit too. Like, there none of them made it out unsaved. Right. Honestly, it's just that Britney no. had the worst of it. Um, but it was a very I, neutral documentary. Said... Like, it was a very journalistic um, approach. It was produced by the New York Times. I mean, not that they're the most reputable 
thing anymore anyway. <laughs> yeah, no. But it had a very journalistic approach. My aunt Cindy says something very funny because I saw her on the circus tour and it was, you know, first time back. And look, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. We we were used to a certain Britney Spears and that was not the Britney yeah. Spears that we saw. However, we were still there to support her. But my aunt Cindy says something very funny. And we, she was like in her fourth song and I could see her looking like this. We were, I mean, just, we might as well have been on the roof. We were so far. And I said, Aunt Cindy, what are you looking at? She goes, I swear to God, she's chewing gum. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I went to that tour as well. And I don't know if you remember this, but they didn't have the big screens that actually show you the show. Yes. And so it apparently was on purpose because they didn't want people to see her like, facial reactions to things because she was so not present. She didn't, she didn't want she didn't to be want there. To be there. She, and rightfully so. That she had, uh, just a year earlier yeah. had gone no, no, through it's really and hospitalization and the shit she and the dad through. was like, get out there, go make us money. And it's yeah. like, give her a fucking break. If, you know, if she had had five years to really get exactly. healthy and become herself again. I think that's the I really think heartbreaking had a part, especially seeing the footage from 2008. Mm. And you can see in 2008 that like, you know what, like you just said, Mateo, like if she had been given the time and the resources, I think she could have come back from the shit that she had gone through. Mm. But they just threw her into this schedule that she had no choice but to go along with basically. And it just got compounded and worse and worse and worse. And I don't know. I mean, I think we all just want Brittany to be free and be happy. It's it's really, it's sad. And it's sad the way that we were also just as the audience and all of it just so manipulated to go along with it. You know? Oh, absolutely. It was a shit show and we bought tickets to go through the whole yeah. mm -hmm. shit yeah. show. Yes, we did. Well, I'll watch it. I read the book. Yeah. I read Mariah, most of Mariah's book after you guys recommended it. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm I mean, it really good. felt like I, I had, she told me it is how it felt. Also, one of the sweetest parts in the documentary is that they, they track down Brittany's old personal assistant, Felicia Collada, mm. who is just this like sweet woman from Louisiana who knew Brittany from like the time she was five. And I think they had a really unique bond together. And it's also kind of sad the way that Felicia was just pushed aside when the conservatorship came in place and mm. they no longer let her like near Britney. And I feel like she's sort of like Britney's only ally in this mm. world. Aww. And I want her to write a book. I really want to read Felicia's book. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating anytime you get someone that big who's like such an impact in pop culture. And then to, it's almost like an examination of how we function as a society yes, and mm -hmm. how little regard we have for humanity. I think actually we've gotten better because in the sense that we would have never, can you imagine if they asked 16 year old Ariana Grande whether she's a virgin or not? I mean, they yeah. would be fired so quickly, canceled immediately. How dare you sexualize this 16 year old girl like this and talk about her virgin? That is no yeah. one's business. And 
you know, I remember being what 12 and hearing them talk to 16 year old yes. Brittany thinking that that's a legitimate I question. They would ask her about her. Yeah. Boobs. Brittany, why are you a virgin? They would ask her about what she's done with Justin. And that was one of the worst parts, honestly. Like, Justin was such a fucking piece of shit. Like, after their breakup, he was actually. Well, don't even like, get me started on the Janet Jackson. He, but thing. he was like capitalizing on it. Like, they play this clip where he was on this radio show soon after their breakup, and these like stupid ass, jackass, you know, radio hosts were like, come on, Justin, come on. Did you fuck her? Did you fuck her? And Justin, I swear, hesitated for like five seconds where he was like, come on, guys, like, I'm not going to answer that. Then they ask him one more time and he's like, yeah, I did. So fucking gross. Like, they didn't even need to egg him on. They literally just asked him twice and he caved on the second time. Like, he was (laughs) just capitalizing on this. I just want to say I've always stood by Joey Fatone. (laughs) I've always stood by Joey Fatone. I sang karaoke with Joey Fatone. He's a nice guy. I love, and he had this really awful cooking show on some public access channel that you could only get, like, if, I don't know, whatever. And I watched it. I watched every episode with my roommates, Evan and Felicia. He's great. Joey Fatone. Well, look, this has been, this is what I love about you, Trana, is that we've literally been doing this for over an hour and we could do another five hours with you. I fucking, we, and we have said this to Trana before and in private. We're like, any time you want to come on the show, you come on the show. You're our favorite guest. Thank you. We love, I love you so you much. So I, much. Every time seriously is such a joy. I love talking with you both. Thank you. Oh, thank you so <laughs> much. Thanks, Liza. Um, be, be, oh, you, yes. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to promote or where can people find you, um, let sure. us know. Just at Trana Winter everywhere. And um, my podcast is coming back with a new season starting the 11th. So just search Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. Our new season is kicking off. And it's I'm really, really excited about it. Great title. Thanks. Yeah, it's a, such a great good title. title. All right, Emma, anything you want to say before I'm just we in Indianapolis out? on February um, 12th. 13th and 14th. 13th. Oh, wow. But I'm at the Comedy Attic, 25% capacity. I've, you know, so there. Oh, and I would like to make a request. I am really trying to get this YouTube channel going, and I, I know it's deceiving. It's Fortnite videos, but they're really just podcasts because it has all different comedians on it. We have Yamanika Saunders, my friend Nick. We've had Bob the Drag Queen, and it really is just like long-form podcasts, and we recently put up, we did an hour-long trial. Yamanika was the judge. Jacob Ritz was one of the lawyers, and it was hysterical. So we put a lot of work editing it. John, who you know does Sound at the Cellar, edited it. So if you get a chance, just go to Mateo Lane's YouTube channel and check it out. I'd really, really appreciate it. Yes, please. Star Bands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.